So, John 11, starting at 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Cephas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will come? Sorry, that he will not come to the feast at all. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The end of the, of the passage, uh, 57. And uh, this morning we're looking at the ultimate rejection. Uh, last time we looked at the ultimate evidence that Jesus of Nazareth uh, is who he claims to be. He claims to be the Messiah. And, uh, and then he's given evidence of that throughout the, the passage of John's Gospel. And uh, he's just finished raising Lazarus from the dead. So he's, he's claiming to be somebody and he's offering evidence for who he is claiming to be. And if he is who he claims to be, then he's able to offer what he claims to offer. And he's just raised a man from the dead. Jesus, as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and as God in the flesh, has offered us so much uh, to the people of Israel and to the readers of John's Gospel in this Gospel. Let's just quickly cover John's Gospel as we, as we, uh, as we kind of conclude this morning. In John chapter 3, verse 15 to 17, he offers eternal life to whoever will believe in him. In John 4, he offers living water to whoever is thirsty in sin, so they will never thirst again. In John 5, he offers, again, eternal life to whoever will listen to him and believe his words. In John 6, he offers himself as the bread of life, so that whoever eats will live forever. In John 7, once again, he offers living water to those who are thirsty. In John 8, he offers himself as the light of the world, who offers a way out of darkness and freedom from sin. In John 9, he offers sight to those who are spiritually blind. And in John 10, he offers abundant life, full life, eternal life. Now, how could the people listening to what Jesus is offering, how can they receive this from him? How can they receive full life, eternal life, and free life? Simply this. By believing that he is the Messiah that the prophets spoke of. That he is the one that's been sent from God. 
Now, he hasn't made it difficult for them to believe these things. He's made it quite easy for them to believe these things. He's demonstrated that he is the one who's able to give this. He has made the lame walk, the blind see, and the dead live. So with all of this offered, and all of these evidences that he is able to offer these things, how will the religious leaders respond? And really what we're doing at the end of John 11 is we're getting to the beginning of the end. Or is it the end of the beginning? The beginning of the end, that's where we're going. We're, we're kind of, all of this is leading up to a crescendo. And this point here is the ultimate rejection in their hearts. And then what we're going to see at the end of John's gospel is that heart rejection leading out the way into them declaring crucifixion. But this is the moment of the ultimate rejection of the religious leaders, which will, which will then, from their hearts, bleed out into how they treat Jesus later on. So let's set the scene, verse 45 to verse 46. It says that many of the Jews had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did, that being raising a dead man, they believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. So once again, the author of John is simply telling you this. There are some who believed and there are some who don't. There's some who look at the evidence, who square it up and say, it's, it must be true. Jesus must be the Messiah. And there's some who look at the evidence and say, no, not for me. And that's what happens here in verse 45. You have the ones who watch Jesus raise a dead man and they believe he's the Messiah. I mean, this is, this is incredible. He's made a blind man see. Now he's made a dead man live. This must be the one. And verse 46, but... Some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. This is what uh, famous uh, atheist Christ- Christopher Hitchens once said. And this is, this is mind-blowing, but, but pay attention to this. If you're not a Christian in this room, pay attention to what he's saying here. If you are a Christian, pay attention to this. But don't think how terrible Christopher Hitchens. Think to yourself, that could be me if it wasn't for God's mercy. Okay? This is what a, an atheist, is, this is what he says here. Okay? Even if I accepted that Jesus was born of a virgin, I cannot think that this proves the divinity of his father or that his teachings are true. Even if the the virgin birth is true, says Christopher Hitchens, that doesn't mean that he was sent from God and it doesn't mean his teachings are true. Then he goes on to say this, the same would be true if I accepted that he had been resurrected. Can you, can you hear what this, is, what this man's saying? This is an atheist who's saying, even if there was 100% evidence that Jesus really was born of a virgin, and 100% evidence that Jesus really did rise again, and by the way, there is, but even if he was to say, I believe it, even if he said, I believe there was a virgin birth, and I believe that Jesus died and rose again from the dead, he's saying here, I would still respond by saying this. That doesn't mean he's from God. And that doesn't mean he's telling the truth. Can you believe this? This is the, the heart of darkness. This is the, the blindness of the human heart. This is our situation. And uh, even though John and I might disagree on, on some of the, the, the elements of, of election, we both fully agree that God has to move first. He has to move first. Look at the blindness of these men. These religious leaders and these, these people who've just watched a, a dead man come to life again. And they walk off and they're like, he, you should go deal with this guy. And Christopher Hitchens said, even if I saw it with my own eyes, 
I still wouldn't believe he comes from God. This is the hardened heart of the, of, the, of the unbeliever. This is my hardened heart before God opened my eyes to see. So if you, even, if you're, even if you're slightly, if you're not a Christian and you're slightly thinking, are these things true? Here's what I encourage you to do this morning. Plead with God that he would open your blind eyes. And if you're at such a point in your life that you're pleading with God to open your blind eyes, that's a really good place to be. You want to go further and believe these things, but plead with him and plead for others that God would open the blind eyes of people who would refuse to see this. And it reminds me of the words Jesus gives in the parable. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rose from the dead. And here he is. A dead man is risen and they still don't believe. And at the end of this book, a dead man will rise again. And they still won't believe. And Christopher Hitchens says, even if I believe the resurrection, I still will not believe. This is the hard heart. In spite of all the evidence, there is a refusal, refusal to believe. So let's see what happens here in, in this passage of scripture. We come to verse 47. This thing, these things happen. Jesus rose him in Bethany. Now these things are happening in Jerusalem. And we come to verse 47 to verse 53. <laughs> Excuse me, and we see the Sanhedrin, the gathering of the, the council. It says the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and they said, What shall we do for this man works? many signs. This is the Sanhedrin. If you're not aware of what they are, this is a, a, a gathering of the 70 most powerful, influential men in Israel at the time. And the high chief is president. They would gather, normally speaking, they would gather uh, in, a, in, a, in a hall like this near the temple. There'd be 35 members on each side. The high priest would oversee the whole situation. This is essentially the supreme court of Israel at that time. 70 men with the high priest as well, making a decision of what they're going to do with this Jesus of Nazareth. Now Matthew 26 tells us that this gathering took place in the courtyard of the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. You see him a little bit later on here. This isn't where they normally meet. They normally meet here. So what this is telling us is some of these fellows have run down the two miles from Bethany and told these religious leaders he's just raised a dead man. Like there was a dead man. Four days he was in that tomb and he came out again. And they've held an emergency meeting in Caiaphas's house. Not here. This is like where they, you know, they, when the deacons, we meet there like every once a month we meet in there. This is like John phoning and saying, we need to meet right now. Come to mine. That's what this situation is. So Caiaphas gathers the gang and 70 men or whoever can make it on that time. They all gather together. They're all here in Caiaphas's house. And the one thing on the agenda what do we do with Jesus of Nazareth? This isn't a normal or any other business. Yeah, uh, Jesus of Nazareth was the dead guy. What do we do about that? This is a, there is one thing on this agenda this evening. What do we do with Jesus of Nazareth? In chapter 2, verse 28, Jesus ha- has just overthrown the temple and the religious leaders demanded that he justify himself with a sign. And in chapter 4, verse 48, Jesus said to them, you won't believe unless you see signs. And then all through John's gospel, there's these signs. Some of these men who are gathering at this council here, some of these men who are gathering at this council have met a 38-year withered man who is now leaping around Jerusalem, racing everyone who will take him on. 
Some of these men have met a blind man who is now hiking up the Judean hills to watch the sunsets and to stare at all the pretty flowers and colors. And now some of these men have heard that a dead man is sitting down again eating lamb chops. And what's the response? What do we do with this man? Because he's doing many signs. Okay. So what are we going to do with this Jesus of Nazareth? This isn't a what shall we do? Shall we believe in him? This is a what are we going to do to get rid of this guy? This isn't a is this really the Messiah? That's not the question they're asking. The religious leaders are concerned that the crowds are following Jesus as the Messiah and as the King of Israel. Now, a nation under the rule of another nation, the Empire of Rome, isn't really supposed to have a king. But God promised Israel that a king would come. God promised Israel that the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen One of God was going to come. And it was actually part of the negative consequences of breaking the covenant that they would have nations rule over them. But these men are quite happy with that. It says in verse uh, 48, if we, let him like, if we let him alone like this, if we let him go on doing this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So even though uh, being under the rule of Rome is a negative uh, consequence of breaking the Mosaic covenant, And even though God has promised them a king, these chaps are quite happy being ruled by Rome just so long as they can keep their power and their prestige in the nation. So what are we going to do about this guy? Becomes the enraged, perplexed cry of this crowd of very powerful men. And then we get to verse 49 to verse 50, the high priest and what he has to say. And he says, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. So there would have been discussion here. Okay, It's not like they all got together. One person said, what are we going to do? And Caiaphas is like, you don't know anything. There would have been a discussion at this point. Some people from John 5 had wanted him dead. Some would have had more of a conscience towards killing a man unjustly. So there's, there's lots of conversation there's lots of discussion what are we going to do about Jesus of Nazareth so after all this talk about what we're going to do and who's going to do what and what are we going to do about this man eventually Caiaphas the high priest stands up or speaks up and he says listen gentlemen I know that some of you might bulk at the injustice of doing something against this man but sometimes the end justifies the means And the end is the continued security of our nation. The means might be the unjust death of one man. But such is the way of politics, I'm afraid. Sometimes we have to get our hands a little dirty for the greater good. And that's that's basically what Caiaphas is saying here. You don't know anything. Because some of these men would have been saying, we have to kill him. And other men in the 70, including people like Nicodemus and others, would have said, but what for? Like, what has he done wrong? And others would have said, it doesn't matter what he's done wrong. He has to die. Like, if, we don't, if we let him live like this, look what's going to happen to us. And others are saying, but the law says you shall not murder. God says you shall not murder. How can we do this? And Caiaphas sits up and says, sometimes we have to get our hands a little dirty 
for the greater good. This is what utilitarianism does. This is the, the outcome of the end justifies the means. It's not a godly approach. Pragmatism is not biblical to say that it doesn't matter what I do as long as it leads to the right results. And sometimes that sort of response leads to people crucifying God in the flesh. It doesn't matter what God's law says. It doesn't matter what God's word says. We'll do this. We'll get our hands a little dirty. But God will understand it's for the greater good. And what happens now is the author chimes in in verse 51 to verse 52. And he kind of comments on on Caiaphas' statement. Caiaphas has just said, let's kill Jesus so the whole nation won't be destroyed by the Romans. And then the author steps into the, the, the narrative. He kind of breaks the fourth wall. And he explains to you, the reader, some, some amazing information. Now this he did not say on his own authority. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So again, this is John, the author of John's gospel, stepping out of the narrative and giving you a a bit of a commentary. He's saying this, Caiaphas is actually right. Like, that's actually true. He's a false prophet, but it's, it's what he said was true. God was speaking through him, though he did not know it. And the Bible states in the Old Testament, there are times when a false prophet would prophesy truth, but then lead the people away from God and thus still be a false prophet. And here's Caiaphas speaking truth, but his outcome is let's murder this man. And so he's a false prophet. But the author here is saying, but this is like, this is actually true. And God's speaking truth through this false man. This false priest and this false prophet is being used by God to speak. The death of Jesus would save the nation. But not the political nation Israel. Because actually by crucifying him, we're going to see the Romans come in just a few decades time. But what he is going to do is he's going to save the true people of God amongst the Jewish nation. And also it says here in these verses, those from other nations who would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. As the Samaritans in John chapter 4 declared, he is the savior of the world. So he has come to die for the nation, but not for that nation only. He's come to gather together as the great shepherd, all the sheep of God from the Gentiles and from the Jewish nation. These children of God would be saved, yes, but not from physical destruction, but from eternal destruction. And Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6 says, You will be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. But I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles or to the nations that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is going to save the preserved ones of Israel and he's going to be a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Caiaphas prophesies truly as a man who's going to murder, uh, be, be in charge of having Jesus crucified. And so we get to verse 53 and the plan is finalized. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Before this, they wanted to kill him. They were, they were furious with him. They were enraged by Jesus. But they were seeking opportunities before. It says in, from John 5 onwards, they sought opportunities to get to him. But they couldn't find opportunities to get to him. Now, as a sophisticated council of men, they have made actual plans 
on how they're going to go about arresting and killing Jesus of Nazareth. Now it's sanctioned. Now it's in the minutes. We're going to kill Jesus. All of this evidence that Jesus is who he says he is and can give them what he claims to give them. And yet they determine to have him killed. Why? Why would they do that? Why would they, why would they see all this evidence and yet have Jesus killed and, and plan to have Jesus killed in their fury? Because their hearts are darkened. Because, as Victoria said in the, in the children's talk this morning, they want to be the Lord of their lives. And that's what happens today, friends, is that, that so many people that we meet, so many people who are not Christians, who, who are, are aware of the evidence, who are understanding of the evidence of God, still don't want anything to do with him. Not because they don't have enough evidence, but because they don't want him as Lord. And they don't want him telling them what to do. The ones who developed the theory of evolution, Richard, or not Richard Dawkins, uh, Darwin and, and others around him, they made this statement. I don't have it on the, on the notes, but I can get it for you at some other time. But this was the statement that was being made at this point as they, as they pushed the theory of evolution. They said, it's not so much that we believe this and we're convinced by all the evidence. It's just that we don't want the alternative. The alternative being a God telling us what to do with our bodies. You see that? That's the condition of the human heart. It's not the evidence. It's the heart that despises God. And so what we should do is we should continue praying for our friends who are not Christians. Not, not despising them, but, but loving them and showing them mercy and grace. And, and lamenting their eternal situation. Lamenting their spiritual darkness. And, and praying for them that God would show mercy and open their hearts. As we continue to speak the gospel into their lives. But also we should thank God. Thank you that you opened my blind eyes. Thank you that you showed me my sin. Thank you that you revealed to me the glories and the beauty of Jesus of Nazareth. Because if you hadn't done it, I could have seen it all and I still would have hated him. Thank you. And what that does, this, what this should be doing in John 11, it shouldn't be helping Christians to get more prideful as we're like, man, I'm nothing like those chumps. We should become more humble and think, if, that, if God wasn't working in me, that would be me right here, in spite of all the evidence, hating God. So we come towards the end. We get to the aftermath. We're wrapping it up. Verse 54 to verse 57. First of all, Jesus leaves in verse 54. He finds out about this. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. He went from there into a country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there he remained with his disciples. Um, Jesus at this point is in Bethany, as you remember, two miles from Jerusalem. Now he leaves to get out of the area a little bit more. Uh, we believe it's not, we, we don't quite know. He went, to, we some, most believe he went a little bit further north to a little village or town, just a little bit north, about 10 miles north or so of Jerusalem. Jesus isn't fleeing here because he's afraid. Jesus is leaving because his time has not yet come to die. All right? Jesus is going to walk back into Jerusalem in the next chapter, and then he's going to be crucified. So he is going to do it, but his timing isn't right, and he's waiting for his father. And this is, this is, it blows my mind. He's waiting for his father to say, okay, go. Go to Jerusalem and be executed. And so it's not the right moment. Still a few more days to go. And so he leaves to go to Ephraim to wait and prepare his disciples a little bit more. 
And then we have verse 55 to verse 57 as, as Passover comes. Just a few days before Passover, it says, the Passover of the Jews was near. This is Jesus' third a Passover in John's Gospel. We have John chapter 2 and John chapter 6. This is coming to the end of Jesus' earthly life here. All the Jewish men from across the nation and even beyond are flocking into Jerusalem. This Passover feast, everyone, all the Jewish men were supposed to come. From all across the country, all across the nation, and all across the world, those who could come were supposed to come. So Jerusalem is filling up. And look what the question is. These men who have come, all these different people, everyone who's come... The question in verse 56, then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? Do you think you'll come to the feast? Jesus is on the topic of everyone. You can't get away from him, friends. You try to run from Jesus and you can't run away from Jesus. It's 2022. Marked because we believe or because back then when they set those dates that Jesus was born at this point. A.D., they're trying to get that rid of that. C.E., it's the, it's the contemporary era. It's the common era. No. It's, it's even, you can take away the A.D. and the B.C. if you want. It's still the mark, though, 2022. You can't get away from Jesus of Nazareth. And so they're asking this question. Is he going to come? And what are we going to do when he comes? In verse 57, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command, given out a warrant of his arrest, that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it. That they might seize him. Everyone talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Wondering if he will come. Since they know the religious leaders want him dead. So let me uh, bring all this to a close then uh, this morning. This is all built into crescendo. You're, you're meant to read this. And I know you've read John's gospel many times I'm sure in your lives. And, and I know that, that, that we're preaching through this. But you're meant to get to the end of John 11 and feel suspense at this moment. Like the first time reading John's gospel, you're meant to be like, what are they going to do to him? Like, what's going to happen? Are they going to get him? Are they going to arrest him? What's going to happen? And there's suspense at this moment. And you're meant to imagine yourself in the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, wondering if Jesus of Nazareth is going to come and what they're going to do if he does come. You're meant to imagine yourself inside that Sanhedrin, that council of 70 men, uh, asking yourself the question, what do we do about Jesus? Do I want them to be put to death? What do we do with this man? You're meant to be asking the question, what do I believe about Jesus of Nazareth? And again, it isn't the evidence. The evidence is smacking us all in the face. It's about the motive of the heart that looks for the evidence. So I conclude with this. If you've trusted in Jesus as your savior, if you've come to know him, whether it was 20, 30, 50 years ago, or seven or two years ago, or six months ago, whatever it is, if you've come to know him, here's what you should do as we sing the hymn at the end of the service, as we come to the quiet moment afterwards, thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his grace. You were so darkened in your heart that God could have come as himself and you still wouldn't have believed in him. Your heart is so dark. So thank God for opening up your blind heart to see. And then pray for others. Pray for those in your life. When you see their stubborn rebellion, don't hate them for that. Understand that that was you before, before Christ and the Spirit moved in mercy in your life. And pray for them and weep for them that they too might experience that grace as well. Amen. Amen. Well, let's come to...